And welcome back to another episode of Kolok. This is your host, Rabbi Hillel Kappenstein, Director of the Columbus Community Kolo, and it's a great honor and privilege to welcome all of you back to our next episode featuring Steve Rosedale. It's always a privilege when we get to um, show how diverse the group of guests are, and we've thankfully have had Rabbanim, uh, mental health professionals, sports figures, and now we get to have a businessman come on and talk about his journey um, and how they carry a uh, from life Torah values into the workforce. So I think you'll very much enjoy this conversation as well. To sponsor a Kolot episode, email me, sponsorkolot at gmail.com. Again, that is sponsorkolot at gmail.com. But without any further ado, allow me to tell you about our guest. Steve Rosedale was a combat soldier in Vietnam and following his service in the war founded Communicare Health Services in 1984, a large Midwest healthcare company. Steve is also a founding board member of Nachal Haredi, member of Eretz HaKodesh, member of Board of Governors of Jewish Agency, and founder of the Cincinnati Community Kolel. Steve, thank you so much for joining Kolot. My pleasure. So can you please tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and your upbringing? Well, I'm Cincinnati born and bred all 80 years. And uh, I began to Bob Chuba when I was 45 years old. And um, how I got there was perhaps a longer story than your show will permit. Uh, but I'll give you some of the highlights. Please. Um, in my last year of college at University of Cincinnati, I literally bumped into a young lady who turned out to be from Israel. I was instantly smitten. And in our, our first conversation, she said, well, you know, this summer I'm going to Israel. And like that, I said, me too. Where is it? Middle East? You say? Turned out... Yeah, I bought this ticket, and she decided not to go, and I had this ticket, what am I going to do with it? But something was pulling me forward, so I decided to go. And I remember uh, flying from Basel, Switzerland. It was midnight. I was on a student charter flight, and I'm looking out at the stars, and the students in the front of the plane are starting to sing these songs, and all of a sudden, tears are coming down my cheek. And I'm thinking to myself, what in the world is going on? And in the early morning at sunrise, we landed in Israel, the old Ben-Gurion Airport. This is 1965. And I found myself getting out onto the tarmac, and I bent down and I kissed the ground. And I'm thinking to myself, what in the world am I feeling? Why am I doing these things? Well, I ended up uh, on a kibbutz, uh, not, a, not a religious kibbutz, and spent a month and a half there, going through the old pond, picking apples, having quite an adventure. And all the while, I'm imbibing this ex- Jewish experience that I never had before. 
I mean, in the past, it was like I grew up. I knew we were Jewish. Where everybody was Jewish in my neighborhood. All of our friends and relatives were all Jewish, but the religious aspect was uh, not something that stuck with any of us, frankly. And uh, the Israel experience that I was having was awakening me to something that I had no clue that existed, that I was part of a Jewish people. I was part of a Jewish people that had a land, that had a heritage, that had a religion, that had such a wealth of a value that I was just totally ignorant of. And the last day, and I'm heading back to the United States after four and a half months, uh, someone grabbed me, spun me around. I'm in the Taka American Z, in the old bus, the old uh, train station. He poked me in the chest with his big finger, and he said in English, he said, I'm looking at this tall, crusted, lack of both the flaming red beard. And he said, your mothers teach you Greek and Latin. What do you know of your own heritage? And I'm backing up, you know, and what kind of crazy person is it? But it stuck in me like an arrow. I couldn't get it out. And for 20 years, it centered around and it affected many, many of the decisions that I made. And after that, I went to, uh, I decided to join the army, volunteer for Vietnam. Is it a sugar nut? Why did I do such a thing? But you have to understand, when you don't come from a traditional background, when you don't have wise people to guide you, you know, who, who are your mentors? The philosophers, the writers. So, Plato said that a young man has to go to the gymnasium and he has to serve his country. It's part of molding him into be the kind of person that he needs to be. And one of my favorite writers are in the Hemingway with ambulance driver in the First World War, and it's like, that's exactly what I want to do. I'll go into the medical service car. Little did I know that the Army had their own ideas. <laughs> and at a certain point, they said, son, here's your gun, and you're going there, right? <laughs> and I ended up as a combat soldier, and it certainly changed my life. And uh, I remember we were all green troops. We came over so scared. We we had no clue as to what was going on. You know, back in the United States, it was running up and down the hills, shooting blanks, less like cowboys in India. But this was real. And, and here you could lose your life. And I remember drawing a big Jewish star on my helmet. And I said, you know, if anybody's up there, keep your eye on this one. <laughs> well, uh, it changed my life. When you're when you're pressed up against your own mortality, and every breath that you take could be your last, and every second you feel the beating of your heart, it un- makes you aware of life as a precious commodity that you so different than you had before. And when I came back, I was uh, a different person. Of course, I had a lot of questions that I had to answer. And um, I went around looking for those answers. You know, why did I survive and my friends perished? Actually, I spent six months in a hospital before I was discharged. 
Um, by the time I was wounded, 90% of my, my group was casualty. Um, it was a tough place. But I, I couldn't find the answers in the philosophers and the writers. And uh, I remember I got married, I had children, and I, I said to myself, you know, I still don't understand why I fell in love with this Israel. Why, why did that open me up the way it did? I want my children to have a Jewish education. Just like the thoughts had said to me, why do, you know, you know nothing of your own heritage. I wanted my children to learn. And the religion was a different story, but so I sent my kids to this day school. And as my oldest son graduated from the eighth grade, the, the principal, a very special person who showed to Nowski, uh, said to me, well, you have to send it to Yeshiva. And I said, that's enough. <laughs> now, out of town, you know, listen, I wanted a little heritage, I wanted a little Jewish education, but enough is enough, right? He pestered me for three weeks. And finally he said so sincerely, for the sake of your child, you wouldn't look, you wouldn't see it. What could they do? You know, for the sake of my child, I had to go look. So I went to this place in Baltimore near Israel. And, oh my goodness, another life-changing experience. I remember the young men who came up to our car and they were going to escort us to the administration building. They looked so clean-cut. You know, the dark pants and the white shirts. And I saw the young mothers uh, on Yeshiva Lane carrying their babies with hair covered. And they looked so wholesome. I just... And then I read, met the uh, Rabbi Herman Uberger on the show. And he had such an impact on me that I said to my son, uh, because he was called Jacob at the time, he's Jacob now, but I said, Jacob, if you're not going here, I am, because something is going on here. They've got goodness here. I don't know what it is, but you got to get some of it. So, he ended up going to Nair Yisrael. And uh, it wasn't but a few years later that I decided to put a keep on my head. 35 years later, here I am. Wow. Quite some journey. That's incredible. Um, I want to just go back to your days in uh, fighting in the Vietnam War um, and leaving combat. Um, what's that like mentally? I know some people talk, you know, talk about, uh, suffering from PTSD and, and the transition from, uh, combat to regular life. How was that journey for you specifically leaving the army? Well, you have to appreciate, uh, the trauma that people go through. First of all, even if they're not injured, just the fear factor alone. Now you, you tamp down that fear or else you couldn't exist. But it's always in the back. And then when you see people killed, and you see dead bodies, when you see the suffering that goes on, uh, well, in my case, uh, it was uh, what we would call now an IED explosion. What happened was that um, we overrun a bunker complex 
the lieutenant and I are down in the bunker, and I'm reading this letter from a girlfriend to her now dead boyfriend, via Kanye the letter, and literally a tear-stained letter. And all of a sudden, we heard an explosion outside and ran out, and guys riding on the ground, um, and a bunch of people started to move around, and a, a friend of mine, sergeant, said, freeze, we're in a minefield. And then an idiot next to me, who turned out he was drunk on rice wine, picks up his beer can that was attached to a, uh, a fishing line, and the world blew up, right? It took out eight of us, and the, the pain was so intense, it felt like I was holding on to, you know, 220 volt wires and just and literally, I had this out-of-body experience where I, I saw myself sort of keel over from 15 or 20 feet away, and and everybody else was moaning, and I remember thinking to myself, well, that's reasonable, and I heard myself moaning, and literally, I had a very weird experience, because then they gave me some work for you, and I sort of jumped back together again. But you go through trauma like this, and it, it, it doesn't leave you. It just doesn't leave you. So when I was discharged, I had a very difficult time. Even though I was six months in a hospital, still, I had a very difficult time adjusting. I remember my sister was talking to a friend, um, and they were laughing, and I ran over and started yelling. I said, do you know that I have friends dying over there? How can you be laughing? Yeah. Right. And I'd say in the beginning, it was with me every minute of the day. Um, but you can't function like that, so it sort of fades a little bit. And as you start to get on with life, it begins to recede into the background. But it was literally decades before I could say that every day I wasn't thinking of it. Wow. Wow. People don't just, they just don't appreciate what it's like on the other side and what the sacrifice is like. And not just during the time of service, but post service as well. It's one of the reasons why I felt an arthritis, a responsibility for soldiers in Israel. That, uh, as I once told our Ramonim, I said, you know what it's like to have the Malcolm Mothers breathing down your neck? And, you know, you're, you're walking on point and you don't know what's going to be three or four feet in front of you and you don't know if the next second you're going to be alive or dead. So, you know, what these young men go through is, is traumatic, uh, at the very best. And that's if they retain their life. Right, right. Oh my gosh. Ooh. So we're actually, that might be on my list of questions down um, as we get there. But in the next segment, I want to talk about <clears throat> your profession, uh, Communicare Health. So before we get into the company, can you tell us what was your first ever job? My first job was teaching for my father. My father had a dancing school in Cincinnati. He also had a television show and before that a radio show. So all the Rosedale had to learn how to dance. And I started when I was 10 years old. 
but I perhaps my most interesting job was when I was 16 years old, I was going to Longest uh, Hills High School, and I took a class in psychology. And I found it so interesting that that summer I got a job at a, a Longview State Mental Hospital. It was a state-run uh, facility, 3,600 patients. Uh, best I could say, it was like a snake pit. I was on the receiving ward, old men, young boys, no medications, crazy, bizarre behavior. My training was a three-day orientation where what I remember was don't get bitten. And I remember after a week, they brought in this guy who was a huge monster leading fellow. He was handcuffed in front with these leather handcuffs and deep set eyes. And he would stalk the floor. Whatever he was, I was on the other side of the building. You know, wherever he was, I maneuvering, right? But after a week, they said, you have to shave, Randy. They gave me a razor. They didn't even need shaving cream. I'm shaking and I'm, I'm following after him. After 20 minutes, he sat down in a chair and I, sorry, cornered it. And he said, Fred, I gotta shake you. I started to rasp on, gee, with this dry razor. And he grabbed my wrist and I'm thinking, ah, that's it, you know. <laughs> but he just gently helped me shave him. And when we were done, he said, thank you. And all of a sudden, the monster fell away. And I saw a human being. And it literally changed my life. What I understood in a very short time is that the biggest difference between me and these people is that I got to go over that. And that we're all coping with that. Sometimes we cope positively and constructively and Sometimes we code negatively and destructively. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, I heard I heard about the dancing. Uh, I was told about that. Um, do you still dance? Well, in the mood, it's me. <laughs> That's good. Um, okay, so let's talk about Communicare Health. How, how did that come about? Well, um, part of my, I'm literally, Repatriation to humanity after the military was that, um, I went to Brandeis graduate school for sociology and, um, I literally needed to put myself together and I needed to find answers to some of the deep questions. Um, one of the things uh, I learned was I studied with a professor named Marge Schwartz, a very gentle, kind and wise person. I think I wrote a book about it, Tuesdays with Laurie. Uh, and I learned from him the concept that he developed called a therapeutic milieu, developed in mental hospitals. He said, you know, if you treat people like human beings, they'll respond as human beings. Because what happens is in hospitals, nursing homes, prisons, any institution, is that the institution forces institutional behavior on both its inmates and the people that work there. And it does so for efficiency's sake. You know, you can't afford to have people acting out and for the cost, maybe these people what you need to feed them instead of the other. And and people lose their sense of responsibility. They become the child to their children. So this concept uh, was interesting at the time. I didn't know how it would 
affect me. But later, when I got into the nursing home business, which was sort of by accident, that a lot of things in my life sort of happened by accident. <laughs> no, I've learned since that I think it was the result of shalom maneuvering thing. But um, there, uh, it, it came to be uh, an important part of our philosophy of care. Wow. So, and and today, fast forward a couple decades, I suppose, how many people work at CommuniCare? Well, probably more than 16,000. 16,000. Okay, so let's talk about that. Um, how do you communicate your message to 16,000 employees? Boy, is that a good question. <laughs> These days, uh, there's so many different electronic mediums. Um, that we communicate in many different ways. Uh, but frankly, it's like the oral tradition. You have to pass it on from one person to the next. And in part, it has to do with how you treat other people. Yeah, you know, your children learn from what you do more than from what you say. Mm-hmm. And it's the same way with people in an organization. How you treat them will have a very large effect on how they respect you or not, uh, how they understand what you stand for. And uh, we make a very large uh, emphasis on values, uh, our values which we encapsulate in an acronym HEART, starting uh, health, H for uh, honesty. But I tell people, you know, it's my name <laughs> that you're trashing. And when I say honest, I mean, be honest with yourselves. And then perhaps you can be honest with others and have the courage to be honest and tell the truth. Because we'll stand behind you. Honest mistakes are mistakes. But uh, you got to be honest. And E is for excellence. Because if people aren't striving for excellence, then, then they don't appreciate that the, the job that they're doing is, is important. And A is for accountability. Uh, we all have to be responsible uh, and understand that we have to have the courage to look at our own work and hold ourselves accountable. And R is for respect. Uh, I have to tell you, most people want respect. But they don't appreciate the fact that you got to give it before you're going to get it. And the T is for teamwork because uh, individuals, uh, individual superstars are important, but it's the team in, in the end that really gets the job done. So we got honesty, excellence, accountability, respect, and teamwork. Yeah. That's the heart of CommuniCare Health. I love that. That's great. Yeah. Um, and as someone who's who founded this and who's been running this, can you – Share beyond this, maybe a leadership lesson or two that sticks out in your mind? My understanding of how to manage people in circumstances changed dramatically after I started learning trauma. For example, I always believed that I told my staff that we have one job, and that's to reach out with our hearts to touch other people's hearts. Um, but it wasn't until I started learning that uh, I understood that that's exactly what the Rebona Shalom wants us to do. 
back to one he's choosing a king for Israel. And Shmuel Anavi goes down to the house of Yishai and got seven handsome sons and he takes the biggest and the best and Rabbanishol and says, no, not this one. And he said, this one. Gets down to the last one out of the field. You know, nobody would thought enough to even bring him in from the field from the sheep uh, to have an interview with the, with the body. And Shmuel says, no. Rabbi Shalom, what do you want? He says, Rabbi Shalom says to him, but Hashem doesn't look on the outer appearance. He looks upon the heart. And I found that it's our professional skills are critically important, but what really heals is the heart. And if you reach out with your heart to touch another person's heart, amazing things happen. And if you have time, I'll tell you a really extraordinary story. Please. So I got a call from old doctor. The rose there. I've got two patients. You're going to lose money. But for me, you're going to take it. He was a sort of gruff character, still made house call, but he had very strong feelings for his patients. So, and he said, they're not going to live so long, so you won't lose too much money. And into our facility came Reverend Harris, preacher of a little Baptist church, and his soulmate, the leader of the choir, Tommy Harris. And Reverend Harris was in the final phase of the Alzheimer's disease. So at the time, we called it senile dementia. And Tommy was, had terminal spinal cancer. Uh, and was combined to a wheelchair and paralyzed from the waist down. But she was a beautiful she just had this sense of presence about her that she emanated love. And she brought her organ into her little chapel and she was seeing these spirituals and would swear the Malachian would come down to listen. That's a beautiful song. Well, I put her on wing of a, of a nurse that was very special. She was an old marine nurse. Well, I thought she was, well, she was probably in her fifties at the time, little that I know. The 50 is a spring chicken <laughs> Looking back. But in any of that, so she and Javi became fast friends. But uh, Irene came up to me one day and just started crying. This girl I don't know what to do. She said, Tommy is so blue. She said, Irene, I'll never see my daffodils bloom in the spring. And this was in February. I remember the day. The next day was February the 13th, and it was this sleety rain, and the sky was dark, and before her shift began at 6.30 in the morning, she planted these plastic daffodils in front of Tommy's window. And for Tommy, the sun showed that morning, and she saw her plastic daffodils. She rolled into my office in her wheelchair and said, Mr. Rosedale, the Lord's not ready for you. God bless you, Tommy. You stay with us forever, your family. Well, sure enough, the spring came and she actually saw her daffodils bloom. And we're having a fundraiser for the Heart Association called a Rock and Roll is a wheelchair marathon. And we were having wheelchair races. People were heading on it and we were giving the money to the Heart Association. 
So I'm calling the play-by-play live on the radio with this telephone hook up. So I'm calling, they're coming around the nurse's station, and said, Andy's in the lead. And Tommy rolled up to me and said, Mr. Rosedale, I'm going to touch my toes. I said, Tommy, you know, I'm thinking paralyzing a bunch of Let's talk about this later, okay? And like all strong women, she ignored me and just sat there. In a couple more minutes, she said, Mr. Rosedale, I am going to touch my toes. And now the staff are all gathering and now starting to make noise. And I said, would you please take Tommy to a day room? We'll talk later. I'm on the radio. But she just sat there. And then another minute later, she said, Mr. Rosio, she looked at me in the eyes and started to get up from that wheelchair. We started to yell and scream. She bent over and she touched her toe. And that summer, she walked out of the facility with a walker and lived for three years in a sick living facility. When she was ready, she came back to us and passed away. And I called the staff together and I said, when you can be part of the vehicle for Hashem's miracles, it's not a job. It's a mission. It's a mission, right. And it's been that way ever since. Wow. What a story. Wow. Um, Okay, one last question. Um, I love the positive take that you had on your mess on your mission, but also could come with, in your line of work is a lot of um, a lot of stress and a lot of turmoil, especially the last couple of years. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit of what it was like during the pandemic with so much going on. I know that's a loaded topic, but maybe a little bit if you could share with us in a snapshot some of the challenges and how you guys survived. Well. Frankly, when you set out to do good things, the Rosh will test you. <laughs> right. I remember we started the Colwell, and uh, this was like in 1999, 2000, something around there, and uh, a few years earlier. And by 2000, my business was going down the tubes to the point where functionally I was probably bankrupt. I had taken on a huge responsibility, had little clue as to what I was doing, and was, was really going down the tubes. And I'm thinking to myself, how am I going to make payroll, coal out, you know? And as my, my son swears to this day, my son Ronnie, he says, you know, the reason we've done so well is because we never missed the payroll. We, you know, supported it no matter what. So that was my challenge. And of course, we rebuilt ourselves back. And had great good fortune. So I turned the business over to my two sons. My son Ronnie uh, Wilhelm does the nursing homes and many ancillary businesses. My son Yitzchak has uh, the behavioral business and drug rehab. Um, so they're the ones who were on the front lines of the most difficult times in the last few years. And I told them, I said, guys, no. You're doing wonderful things and you get tested. You know, Ronnie was present now in the Colwell and uh, Yitzchak started uh, in the SIPT and the girls' high school and he's all his thing. And so what 
when you set yourself up to do these good things, the Rabbani Shalom is well, are you really, really, really Emma here? You know, you know, it's like uh, learning recently and uh, the Dharma. And I think it was Rav Yochanan said, I'm not sure of the attribution, but says, I never will eat from a carbon of a dancer. Except for one case. Now, why wasn't he from another? They got a carbon from another because he didn't believe it. You know. It was really or purely atmospheric reason. He said that there was one case. A young man came to me and he said, I'll tell you my story. And, I, you know, I was looking one day at a little pond and I saw my reflection for the first time. And I saw that I was handsome and good looking. And I fell in love with my reflection. And I said to myself, can I be drawn into this world that has purely for the purpose of a nourish type and take it away from the world of Torah? By looking at my reflection. So I became a Nazar. And the Yochanan said, from you, I'll eat from your karma. And you know, it's hard to be, to do things lishma, purely for the sake of power. And the Rabbanish alone will test us. And Baruch Hashem, my, my kids have stood the test. And it's all working. Wow. That was in my list of questions, and I guess you beat me to it. Um, I do remember you um, mentioning in a different context about how your business grew as much as your involvement in the community grew. And uh, to see how it, not just with yourself, but also in the next generation is a, is a testament to how Hashem gives people um, the, the tools and the tests that are specifically uh, made to them, made for them. Um, as we wind down, I do want to ask, you know, um, it comes a certain amount of um, a lot of things that come only with experience. And as you know, we come as we uh, next generation of leaders come, um, I want to know if you could share some of your advice and, and on, on both ends, you know, young people entering the workforce and also young people entering Askanas community work. What is your advice to them? Well, if you're entering into business for the money, choose another profession. Um, if you're successful, it's because Rebonisha Olam will put it into your hands. If you're not doing some type of work that's going to benefit other people, and I don't care whether it's making something and you know, running a business. Uh, we're in a business where you can do mitzvahs every day. And it's not so simple uh, because people are in very sick circumstances. But no matter what business that you're in, if it's not benefiting people and if you're not providing the good, then it's, uh, then it's just money. And frankly, you have one money, you want two monies. And it's, it's a vicious circle and it's not a healthy lifestyle and don't do it. 
if you look at business as an opportunity to do mitzvahs, and you could do that not only in the service or the product that you're providing, but how you treat and take care of people. Your dealings with other people are always an opportunity to, to live a touristic life. And to the degree that you are reimbursed by the Rebbeinu you know, use those profits for what the Rebbeinu wants us to do. For chesed, for building community, for doing all the good things. If you do that, you'll be successful. Wonderful. Wonderful. Yeah. Enter for the right reason. And good things will come, recession. Wow. Well, Steve, this was a real, uh, a real privilege for us. You know, only uh, a, you know, less than a hundred miles away or so. You hear so many things about someone, and um, to finally sit down and chat and hear it. You know, I was going to say in person, but uh, in Zoom uh, was really uh, a schuss for us, and we're very thankful for your uh, for your wise uh, remarks and your journey. Um, not every day you get to speak to someone with the journey from Vietnam, sending uh, their kids to yeshiva on their own spiritual journey and running the company and embedding the values that you do. So thank you so much for joining Colot. It's an honor and privilege to have you. My pleasure. Thank you for the good work you've done. Thank you. To listen to all Colot episodes and see upcoming guests, visit colopodcast.com. We are also on all podcast players. Type in Colote on iTunes, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, Podbean, and Amazon. Share with your friends and please make sure to give us a five-star review. Colote is a project of the Columbus Community Colo, a full-time Jewish learning center in Bexley, staffed with high-caliber Torah scholars. Ever since 1995, boys, girls, men, and women from all backgrounds and affiliations have found many opportunities to connect with Torah and mitzvahs at the Colo. Whether it's a study partner, engaging lesson, or a program, the Kolel is your one-stop shop for all your Jewish learning. If you want to know how you can benefit from the Kolel, visit thekolel.org. That is T-H-E-K-O-L-L-E-L dot org and forever be inspired.